Well, we're going to continue our study in Genesis of the lives of Isaac and Jacob. Um, we are in Genesis 26, and I'm going to read to you verses 12 through 35. This is chapter 26, verses 12 through 35. You can listen if you want to. Uh, it can be found on page 20 of those Blue Pew Bibles. Feel free to turn there, or you can turn after I read. Genesis 26, verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitnam. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzah, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, because you and us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now blessed of the Lord. So he gave them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. When, Isaac was 40 years, when Esau was 40 years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beri, the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basemoth, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for Isaac 
friend Rebecca. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please have a seat. I was reminded as we were going through the order of worship how often we talk about sin in this congregation. And you may find yourself going, man, why do these folks talk about sin all the time? Well, we were talking in the evangelism class about the gift of being able to call sin, sin. And even among Christians often, the resistance of calling something sin, uh, sin. And one of the things that Nathan had brought up was, you know, if we were willing to call sin, sin, then what we can be certain of is redemption because of Jesus. If you are here today and you wonder, is God going to redeem this issue in my life, this brokenness that I see, this fear that I'm filled with, this doubt, this anguish, this bitterness, this estrangement. I want to invite you. Would you call it sin? Sin from living in a beautiful but broken world. Sin from springing from our hearts. Sin because we have given into temptation. Because if you will, there is for you and me certain redemption. In that way, let's consider who God is. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we come before you and we believe that according to your word, you are the one who has drawn us. That there's not a woman or a man here today that you haven't orchestrated the moments of their life to be in your presence now listening to this story about Isaac. Father, you know how needy and desperate I have felt this week. You know how overwhelmed with present circumstances, um, with disagreements, with um, the inability to see eye to eye, with the exhaustion of the anxiety of the conditions of the world in which we live, the polarization the questions of the future, our finances, everything, Father. We do not want to fake who we are as human beings. We're struggling with the health of our parents. We're wondering what to do for our children who are eaten with anxiety. Father, we are overwhelmed and we come before you. And we are amazed that you have said time and time again that you will meet us. And so, Father, we ask you, would you come and would you meet us? Father, some of us have had such good weeks that we have decided this is the week I'm going to go to church and praise God's name because he has provided for me. Father, we thank you for that provision. And we pray that even as you show us how you provided for Isaac, you would show us your provision for us and that we would be quick to give you thanks. Father, would we be women and men who hear your word now and are moved to praise you for providing Jesus for us. Father, I pray, whether it's the person who is here for the first time or for the 500th time, would you meet each of us 
and draw us to worship you now. Would you be glorified? Would you make your name great? We thank you for the songs that we have heard Athena and Nathan sing. We thank you for the psalms that we have read and participated in. And now we ask you, speak to us through your word. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, we're studying the lives of Isaac and Jacob through these chapters in Genesis. We're asking ourselves a simple question. Who is God? Ancient scholars, Augustine, not the least of them, have argued that because we, as women and men, are made in the image of God, we actually image the triune God in the way that we function. And and what he would mean is like this. You reason, you have the ability to reason, and that reason draws from you speech. That reason draws from you decision. That reason draws from you emphasizing something, and then from that emphasis, we act, right? That's what that means, this idea of of reason and contemplation, this idea of realizing what we are saying as human beings, and then that those words lead to action as women and men, whether you trust in Christ or not. But he would also argue that to be made in the image of God, the highest calling that we have is to contemplate God, not to just contemplate the world in which we live, but to contemplate God. And I want to ask you, what does it look like to contemplate God in the wilderness? Because that's where this passage is set today. In fact, it might be one of the defining facts about God calling himself to the Israelites Telling Moses, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He might as well have said, I am the God who met all of your fathers in the wilderness. Because that's what he's doing here in this passage. We talked last week about how verses 1 through 12 are part 1 of this passage, which is 12 through 35, right? That this passage is out of chronological order with what we saw before with with Jacob and Esau and what we're about to go back to and see Jacob and Esau again. Remember the reason why Nathan said that it was out of order chronologically? Because it says that this Philistine king, Abimelech, saw Isaac and Rebekah, and Isaac had lied about who Rebekah is. And if Isaac and Rebekah had had Jacob and Esau, it would have been obvious that they were a family unit. But this story is out of order so that the author might make this theological important point for Isaac, but also for the rest of the story. What is at stake in Isaac's life? You remember who Isaac is, right? Isaac is the son of Abraham. He's the child of promise to Abraham and Sarah. He's the one who survived almost being slaughtered by his father on the altar when God sent an angel at the last minute and said, stop. And Abraham calls the place Jehovah-Jireh because God is the provider. We see in this story what is at stake in Esau despising his birthright. But this story, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy make up the Pentateuch written by Moses as history and explanation for the people of Israel. 
These Israelites who also asked Moses, who sent you to us? And Moses said to them, the God of your fathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And the Israelites were asking in the wilderness, in the wilderness, who is God? That is their wilderness experience. And Abraham defines God in terms of who he is in the wilderness. And for us, now as we look at this passage, as we delve into this season of contemplating who is God, the question for you and me today is how do we conceive of God in times of deprivation, in times of utter dependence, because that's what the wilderness is. And that is the context of this story about Isaiah, of Isaac. Let me give you an example of how you might do this. As you practice bearing the image of God, as a human being, maybe you contemplate with your reason in times of deprivation, I have not been given what I deserve. And so you express with your words, I am going to get more. And then we consume with our lives something or someone in a dependent manner. It is important how we consider who God is because it is important how we bear his image even in the way that we think. The truism that comes to full force for us today is that the God of the Bible uses the wilderness to move his people from dependence on provision to dependence on promise. Let me show you how that works in the life of Isaac. First, how do we see this idea of God using the wilderness to lead Isaac to provision? All right? This passage starts in the midst of famine in Genesis 26, verse 2. We're told that there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that they had recorded with Abraham, right? And Isaac is told by God, don't go down to Egypt. And Nathan told us last week the reason that Isaac would have wanted to go down to Egypt is because it was the best place to go during a famine because they could use the water from the Nile to have crops and there was always something there. So you could go to Egypt and be confident in food. But God says, don't do that, rather stay here. God calls Isaac to trust in him. And what we see in verses 12 through 15 in our passage, so Isaac sowed in that land, the land of Gerar. He did not leave. Instead, he went toward the Philistines. He stayed where God had told him to stay. And he sowed in that land. And in that same year, he was blessed a hundredfold. That's a magnificent blessing. That's not just a small blessing. That's just not what you need to get by. It is magnificent. And we're told that he became rich and that he acquired possessions and that he became very wealthy before God. We're told that God provided for him. And we're told that the Philistines watched God provide for him and that they became very envious. Do you see that? In verse 14, it says, when he had all those possessions, that the Philistines envied him. And what they ended up doing 
was they ended up determining to drive him out. Now, it's interesting because it says that the Philistines had actually gone after Abraham died and they stopped up the wells that Abraham had dug and they filled them with dirt. What does that mean? To us, that would be like property damage and you call, you know, State Farm and ask them to get it fixed. But here, what this means is that it makes the area of land that you are going to live in unlivable. It's untenable to be there. It was a certain call for death for them to push Isaac away into that land. But indeed, in verse 16, that's exactly what we hear them say. Abimelech says to him, you've got to go away, for you're mightier than we are. And they push him away and they say, go out. Knowing that the places where they have sent him have wells that have been stopped up and that no longer flow. Well, we see that they indeed determined his harm as we read the passages from 17 on that Isaac departed from them. He was forced to first go into the valley and he found a well and he dug it and he found water where they could have lived, but they fought with him there. They quarreled with him. They said, no, that's our well. You've got to keep going. Get out, get out. And they push him farther away. He goes and he finds a second well And not just quarreling now, but contention, hatred. We don't want you here. That too is our will. Get out, pushing further and further away, more desperate than before. It is obvious that the Philistines wanted Isaac dead. And they push him out into no man's land. And then we are told, at the end of those verses, as he dug another well in verse 22 that he moved away from those two wells, dug yet another well, and this time they did not quarrel over it. So he gave its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. You can read the footnotes as well as I can, and you see here God provided in the wilderness for Isaac where he least expected it to. No man's land, the place where the Philistines had said, there's nothing out there. And yet God provided for him there. Rehoboth, if you look down at your notes, means broad place. It's not often that I get to think about this, but did you know that's what my name means? Bradley, old English for broad lee, right? You get it? Broad place is what that means. A place of provision, a place of God's meeting you there. And when I think about it, I wondered in my own life, how much do I consider the character of God according to his provision for me? What I think I have. How often do you consider the character of God according to his provision for you? What you think you have. Is God's character His relationship with you determined by what he provides for you. The interesting thing is, is that God uses this wilderness experience to make it clear in our lives how we consider God's character. In times of deprivation and in times of dependence, what do you think about God? And what do you think about his relationship with you? 
This is made most clear for us in the wilderness. But what's interesting is that the story doesn't end there. The last thing that I want you to see is that God moves Isaac from provision to promise. Right? He takes him from provision at Rehoboth to promise at Beersheba. Watch how this happens as Isaac continues to ask, who is God? From there he went up to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. And then we're told in verse 25, so he, Isaac, built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. God moves Isaac from Rehoboth up to Beersheba. Why is Beersheba an important place in Isaac's life? If you go back and read chapter 22, Isaac is coming off the mountain where his father had had tied him up and put him on the altar and was about to sacrifice him to God when God said, stop, Abraham, I see what you are willing to do and I am going to bless you, I am going to provide for you and I am going to unconditionally promise you that I will be with you and bless you. And Abraham taught Isaac there and declared in Isaac's presence, God is Jehovah Jireh, he is our provider. And it says that they went from that mountain back to Beersheba and that's where they grew up. Beersheba and Rehoboth are about 20 miles away from each other through this wilderness land. Isaac had learned there that Jehovah was the provider. He's so close to that place that he ends up returning home. And it says in verse 23 that immediately upon returning, God made himself known to him. He says, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. Verse 24 is the high water mark of this text. It is Isaac turning from provision to promise and God proclaiming, do not be afraid, Isaac. And he says something that he has not said to Abraham, I am with you and I will bless you. And then he talks about multiplying his offspring. And he says that it is for your father's sake. God is saying to Isaac, this is your inheritance. This is the magnitude of the birthright that is yours and that you will pass on. This is your inheritance. This is the reason why this story is told. So that we would see the magnitude, not of God's provision for Isaac, but of God's promise to Isaac. That we would understand that God is who he is according to his promise, even when his provision for you may ebb and flow. Even when he may call you away to places of hunger and of need and of deprivation and of dependence. That you and I might know that God's love for us is according to his promises. What do we see result in Isaac's life? Verse 25 says that Isaac built an altar there. He didn't build it at Rehoboth. He didn't call on the name of the Lord at Rehoboth. He called on the name of the Lord there at Beersheba. He built an altar. 
And he sacrificed there. And he called upon the name of the Lord. He worshiped. This is Isaac's high point. He contemplated, do I believe God? His very actions expressed belief in God and he worshiped God. This is an amazing thing that we see in Isaac's life because you're not going to see it again in Isaac's life, sadly. But here we see that he worshiped and pitched his tent there his confidence in God's promises. Look at the impact that it had on his life. Verses 26 through 33 tell the story of how Abimelech, along with two of his guys, the commander of his army and one of, his, one of, his, one of the other captains, come to him and say, hey, look, will you make an oath with us? We've seen how great you are. Do you know what they're saying? They're saying, we tried to kill you and you didn't die. In fact, you've only flourished Because the God who is with you has protected you. And so we're going to come to you and we're going to now ask you to make an oath with us. Will you promise not to hurt us as we have not hurt you? Do you read that and go, you ought to, and say, what do you mean they haven't hurt him? They drove him away. They drove him into the wilderness. They expected his death. But Isaac whose focus is now on the promises of God, not just the provisions of God, is able to turn to them and not repay evil with evil, but able to repay evil with good and say, yes, I will make an oath with you. I will make an oath with you. Isaac sets the feast. Isaac feeds the dinner. Isaac gives them his oath. And the place is called Beersheba in the same way that Abraham had made the same oath a few chapters earlier, we see in this action of Isaac that God has used the wilderness experience to move him from provision to promise as the basis of his knowledge of who God is in his life. Does your confidence in the promises of God enable you to do and to act with such obedience? Or do you flop back and forth as one who wonders, does God love me, does he not love me, as the provision in my life comes and goes and ebbs and flows? Are you stuck in a pattern of complaining and praising, complaining and praising, Because if you and I are, it is most likely the case that we are dealing with God according to his provision versus his promise. When the Israelites asked Moses, who sent you? He said, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of your fathers, he is the one who sent me. He might have well told those Israelites, the God who deals with his people in the wilderness sent me. And guess where we're heading? The wilderness. We are going to see Jacob head to the wilderness very soon. We are going to have to watch him ask the same questions that you and I ask. What do we believe God's character to be toward us? 
in times of deprivation. How does this lead us to Jesus? Well, he's the amazing thing. Where does Jesus go in the very beginning of his ministry? He's driven by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. A place of deprivation. A place of temptation. A place of utter dependence. And what does Jesus do when he's tempted by Satan? Satan says, look, you're God. Why don't you say to this stone, become bread? Jesus pulls a verse out of Deuteronomy 8. And he says, the scriptures say that man does not live by bread alone, but man rather lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, according to his promises. Do you want to know what that passage in Deuteronomy 8 says? It's God explaining to his people why he leads them into the wilderness. That's what those few verses in Deuteronomy 8 are. Do you want to know why? God says this to his people. I have driven you to the wilderness because I want to test you. I want to humble you. I have allowed you to be hungry, to to not have what you need, so that you might know your own heart. Do you relate to me because of your provision, or do you relate to me because of promise? Church, are you in the wilderness right now? Do you not know how you're going to get through tomorrow? Do you feel like you're in a place of deprivation, of utter dependence, if we're going to figure this thing out, of how to be a church, of how to be a light into our societies, of how to have unity? Do you feel dependent and deprived right now? That is a place of the wilderness. And the great news is that that's where God meets his people. And that's where God reminds us I relate to you by promise. And Jesus is the one who did that perfectly for us and resisted the temptation and therefore was the right one to die for us. And as we were reminded in adult ed this morning or this afternoon, we are united to him. We are connected to him. His record is ours. We died with him. We are children of the promise. When we see this passage, we understand that the truth that is told is that God deals with his people in the wilderness so that he might take us from dependence on provision to dependence on promise. That promise is spoken even louder here at this table. Will you come? Will you eat it? Will you be fed? Let's pray.